Okay, the book of First Kings, if you'll turn there with me, we begin a new study together tonight through another Old Testament book. First and Second Kings, certainly a lot of history we'll see regarding the nation of Israel. But again, remember, uh, history doesn't necessarily have to be boring. In fact, to me, honestly, history became very, very exciting uh, after I became a Christian. Uh, I had very little interest in history. I didn't do too well in history throughout my uh, school years. But uh, when you recognize, if you look at the word history, I'm sure you've heard it said before, history in many ways, if you understand God's sovereign rule over thing, is basically his story. Uh, and history is basically his story. It's God's story of how God is orchestrating affairs on this earth and superintending over all things that happens and particularly when it has to do with the things that are happening among his people and as we track the nation of Israel God's chosen people and what's going on and of course the messianic line the line of Jesus Christ coming through this particular chosen group of people the Jews uh, it makes it very exciting and first and second kings originally actually were all one volume uh, when they were first recorded uh, and later on were divided into two separate Bible books. Uh, many believe it was around the time when the Septuagint was uh, created which is basically the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that it was at that time that perhaps just for management's sake it was broken into two separate books first and second kings uh, what we look at in the book of kings first and second kings spans really a time period of about 450 plus years of history as we go through this and it covers really the the beginning of the reign of solomon which we'll see happens right at david's death so it goes from the reign of king solomon all the way through to what we would consider the the conquering and the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem in 586 BC by the Babylonians as they come in and take over. Uh, chapters 1 through 11, about the first half of the book of 1 Kings, will focus mainly on King Solomon's reign. It'll focus on the uh, construction of the temple. Remember, the tabernacle was the tent-like structure that God gave instruction to Moses about that moved around the wilderness as they were journeying. Now a actual physical permanent structure will be built under Solomon's reign. Remember, this was what was in David's heart. But God told David, it's good that you had that in your heart, but you're a man of war and you shed much blood. And, and though that desire has been in your heart, David, uh, it's great that you had the vision and the desire. But I actually, by sovereign choice, have chosen a different man, your son Solomon. And we'll see this now to actually implement the building of the temple. And really Solomon actually fulfills David's vision, what God gave to David and what was in his heart. So we'll see the construction of the temple and many of the beautiful symbolisms we can see of Christ in those things. And then chapters 12 through 22 record the time of the divided kingdom and the reign then of many different kings. And by the divided kingdom, what we mean by that is that right after Solomon's death, the nation will then be divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And we'll see that begin from chapter 12 onward. And then also the end of 1 Kings records to us the introduction of the ministry of Elijah the prophet. And just a very exciting Bible character, Elijah.
Elijah the prophet is. So many exciting things to see in this book. It's a historical record, again, of Israel under the reign of multiple different kings. It describes the fall of a nation uh, and how a nation falls. That was once a nation that was under God's direction and, and government and rulership. And after Solomon, again, the kingdom will be divided into these 10 northern tribes. They'll be considered Israel, and we'll see that. And then there will always be a king of Israel. And then there will also be the southern kingdom of Judah uh, in the south. And there will also be a king of that nation once the, the nation becomes divided after Solomon's reign. So then it kind of becomes a little bit tricky. We have to keep track of are we talking about the king of Israel in the north we're the king of Judah in the south, and it'll be kind of flip-flop, and we'll do our best to kind of keep track of that. And combined, we'll see in these books, 39 different kings uh, all together in the north and in the south will rise, will ascend to power. Some of the reigns will be very short. Some of the reigns will be considerably that much longer in comparison. And in the south, in what's called Judah, the southern kingdom, there will be 20 kings and of those 20 kings, only eight of them actually do what is good and what's right in the sight of the Lord. Not a great track record for government there. Only eight out of the 20 do what's good and right in the sight of the Lord. Uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel, there will be 19 different kings. And to make it worse, not one of them, not one of the 19 do what's good and right in the sight of the Lord. They're evil. They do what displeases God and many wicked and sinful things are introduced and practiced and really sort of implemented into the nation because of the political ruler being ungodly themselves. And that just leads to the deterioration morally and spiritually of the people under their reign. So with that sort of as a backdrop, we, we pick up now with David, as we'll see in chapter one, really sort of kind of at the, the end of his life now, when beginning of chapter two, David will actually die. So this is sort of our last few uh, details of David's life before Solomon takes over. And we'll see that before that happens, some more issues arise among David's family. Remember, the Bible says that the sword would never depart from David's house as one of the consequences of some of David's mistakes and sins in his earlier life. And we see some of that still manifesting itself even in the latter years of David's life. It says, verse 1, Now King David was old, and the Bible is allowed to say that, uh, and advanced in years. And the idea at this point, just so you know, chronologically, David's probably somewhere around 70 or so years old at this point. Uh, but yet 70 years old, uh, though there are those who live longer at this time, and today 70 years old may not seem that long uh, to some as well. But, but David, remember, David had lived 70 hard years i mean this was a guy who remember worked out in the wilderness when he was tending his father's sheep as a young man with his bare hands and a sling and a staff and fighting off it says you know bears and lions grabbing a lion by the beard i mean i can't even imagine doing that you know grabbing a lion by the beard and killing it with your bare hands so that it wouldn't wound or hurt one of the sheep and then remember david ends up spending at least we know a good 10 years if not plus beyond that out in the wilderness, remember living like a refugee when he was the anointed king, but yet being pursued and rejected by Saul, why Saul was still reigning and jealous of David. And David's living out in the wilderness, living in caves and like a refugee. 
through all this process as well. David is a hardened combatant. He's a military man. He's fighting battles for Saul. Then he's fighting battles as a mercenary when him and his mighty men are out in the wilderness. And then David, of course, becomes a very uh, famous military general that led Israel in many, many battles and victories. And again, when I say military general, I'm not talking about a guy who has all the medals on in his you know, dress blues, if you would, and is just sitting behind a desk making strategies and sending out uh, the troops into the uh, battlefield. You're talking about somebody who in this day, again, it wasn't long-range artillery and aircraft dropping bombs. You're talking swords and spears and shields and hand-to-hand combat fighting in close quarters. I mean, this kind of stuff has some wear and tear on you. So when it says here that David's 70 years old and advanced in years, uh, you have to keep in mind there's been a lot of wear and tear. So he's, he's really worn at this point. And you can see he's starting to have some health issues now. His health is drastically declining. And as a result of that, verse 1 tells us that they put covers on David, but he could not get warm. So again, he's just at that stage. His body's breaking down. His health is very much declining. He's, you know, kind of almost this sort of hospice stage, if you would. He knows his time is short. He can't keep warm. He perpetually has the chills. He can't generate body heat, no matter how many blankets they put on him. Again, because blankets can keep the warmth in. But you can put 10 blankets on somebody. If they're not generating body heat, they're still going to be cold and deal with the chills and that that unpleasant experience. So wanting to tend to their king and care for him, uh, they implement something to try and help David to stay warm. It says, verse 2, Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman, a virgin, be sought for our lord the king, and let her stand before the king, and let her care for him, and let her lie in your bosom, that our Lord the King may be warm. And the idea here is they basically find someone to function as sort of a personal nurse or personal aide to David in this time of failing health when he can't generate body heat and stay warm to not only care for him, tend to his needs, but actually at time even lay next to him to try and help generate body heat just to try and keep him warm and, and keep him comfortable. It says verse 3, So they sought for a lovely young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. And the young woman was very lovely and she cared for the king and served him, became his personal aide and uh, nurse or medical attendant in all of his needs. But notice verse 4, the Bible is very clear. It wants us to know the king did not know her. The implication there is, is there were no sexual relations. There was nothing romantic about this. It was strictly something where she was providing help to David. And we even know historically, Josephus and others tell us this was actually a medical practice that was used in that day to help someone in failing health if they were struggling and could not generate body heat that they would have individuals who actually were hired to just lay next to someone to try and help them uh, be more comfortable in times of failing health particularly if you had the money to be able to do something like this and certainly a king did so this woman was helping David in this way and we'll see ultimately 
The Bible records this for us for a reason. We'll see when we get a little bit further on, because you may look at that and think, what do we need to know that for? I mean, <laughs> what, what really, I mean, that's almost like telling us David's prescriptions. And by the way, David took three Motrin a day, and he took a little bit of Geritol. And like, what, who cares about that? What do I, I mean, it's, there's a reason for the Bible recording that, not just for the sake of uh, giving us a unique story. We'll see as we go a little further along. Verse 5, we begin to see now some of the problems unfolding. It says, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and that was one of David's many wives, so this is one of David's sons, uh, actually one of his fourth, I think it's the fourth son, I believe, in the order, exalted himself, and that's never good, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. So at this time, it's obvious to everyone David's health's declining. So someone is going to succeed David, King David, upon the throne. Now, culturally, a lot of times, usually the eldest son, if you went by the way culture did things, would be the one who became the successor to the monarch. Uh, but we know that, lo and behold, God doesn't do everything culturally. Uh, so it's very foolish of us a lot of times when we try and look to the culture for our model of how to do things because uh, God doesn't always respect culture. Uh, culture may do things one way, but that may not be God's way. And many times, uh, though culture would do things a certain way in a family or a situation like this, uh, God would sovereignly choose and ordain someone maybe that might be the youngest to be in charge rather than the eldest to be in charge. And by the grace of God, he would sovereignly select who he wanted for different uh, assignments and so forth and put his calling upon their lives. And we're going to see, though Adonijah wants to be the king, and maybe even some people thought he should be the king, he wasn't God's selection. Solomon was. And this is what this chapter is going to reveal to us. And so obviously people can tell David's house declining, someone's going to succeed the throne. And Adonijah now, seeing his father's declining health, he becomes an opportunist. And people who are opportunists are basically, unfortunately, people with impure motives who see a situation that may be having difficulty or declining, and they see that situation as an opportunity to capitalize to do what's to their best interest. And typically, they just make things worse. Uh, and, and this is what uh, Adonijah is. He's an opportunist. Hey, my father's health is failing. This is a perfect opportunity for me to exalt myself. Here's a perfect chance for me to try and take control, to win friends, influence people, to get what I want, which is to be the one who can sit on the throne. And it seems from the reading of the chapters as a whole here in chapters 1 and 2, that most people were aware that Solomon was God's choice to be the king, even though he was not really uh, the next eldest son in line. And the reason Adonijah might have thought he was the right individual is because it seems the first three sons of David uh, were dead at this point. Remember Absalom, Amnon, we know both of them have died. They were both older. There was another son, Chiliab. We don't know anything about what happened, but it's very likely that maybe something happened. There was an accident and he died. And so this son is now the eldest and he thinks, hey, I'm the oldest, I'm entitled to this, and I want to be king anyway. So he takes the opportunity now to disregard what may be God's will in this situation and to begin to try and promote himself. It says, verse 5, that Adonijah exalted himself, saying, I will 
the king. And he prepared for himself, notice, chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Again, just trying to make himself look as if someone important to uh, prepare things in such a way where he's, he's, you know, he's campaigning like a typical politician. He's like, I need to do what I can to prove that I'm the people's choice. I'm the one that should be in this position. The problem is the fleshly nature, the carnality of exalting oneself. And trying to promote oneself. Uh, it is never a good thing in any situation to exalt yourself. Uh, the Bible is very clear about that. The Bible warns us not to exalt ourselves in the presence of the king. Rather, it's better for him to say to us, come up here, than him to humble us before the people. Jesus himself, of course, probably had some of the most... Uh, important statements about this very thing let me just read you this is from luke chapter 14 jesus it says told a parable in those days luke 14 to those who were invited when he noted how they came in and chose the best places at the feast or the dinner they came in and there were certain seats of who was the most important and who deserved the most recognition and jesus noticed that people had a tendency to come in and to want to hurry up and get there and take the seat that would indicate, hey, that guy's important because he must have a title or he must have a position. And they would position themselves in a place where they look like someone special because they wanted that attention and recognition. And so Jesus told this parable. Listen to what Jesus said. He says, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited. And then he who invited you and him comes over and says to you, hey, give your place to this man. Who do you think you are? This guy's more special than you are. Get out of his seat. And you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, Jesus says, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited comes over may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. Then Jesus makes his statement, Luke 14, 11, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So again, the Bible tells us, Jesus, the word of God himself tells us that whenever we exalt ourselves, that's not in accordance with God's will. It's not going to work and we're going to end up honestly being shamed and humbled if we try and promote ourselves and exalt ourselves in some way to present ourselves and elevate ourselves. But the proper way, it's an upside down kingdom that when we humble ourselves and we just humbly allow ourselves to, to be a servant and we're not looking to strive and try and make something happen and promote ourselves that God looks upon that and God is the one who exalts us. The Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord that he may exalt you in due time. And, and so this is the heart that we're to have. And so Adonijah here shows what is unhealthy. He's exalting himself, wanting to promote himself, to be recognized as a successor. I will be king, he says. He's preparing now to present himself as the people's choice for the king to kind of get in that position before any, because again, at this point, it seems David hasn't publicly named Solomon as the successor. So he tries to, in a fleshly way, really thwart God's will. And the flesh will always do that because the flesh always wants to exalt itself over the work of the spirit in our lives. So verse six says his father, little parenthetical insight about Adonijah, his father had not rebuked him at any time saying, why have you done so? 
He was also, Adonijah, a very good-looking man, and his mother had borne him after Absalom. So notice, we recognize he's related to Absalom. Do you remember Absalom, who rebelled against David and sought to push David off the throne and take the throne to himself? Absalom apparently was his brother, and these guys must have had a really good-looking mother because they were good-looking men. They were very attractive. So again, this is sometimes, unfortunately... You know, the, the curse of being a very attractive, talented, charismatic person, if a person like that doesn't have character, boy, that is a, a shipwreck in the making right there. And, and so Adonijah, apparently like his brother Absalom, was very good looking. Again, he was very just a, a charismatic, you know, attractive individual in his personality, but he doesn't have character or depth inwardly. And it seems that in a lot of ways he was just a very spoiled, undisciplined young man. And some of this is the direct result of David's failure as a father because verse 6 tells us about Adonijah that David, his father, throughout his upbringing had never rebuked him at any time saying, why have you done this? In other words, what the Bible is telling us is David never challenged this young man as he was growing up and challenged him for when he was doing things wrong. He was never corrected by his father, the Bible is saying. He was basically allowed to live an undisciplined, spoiled life like a pampered palace brat who would just do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, and David as a father never challenged him. He never exercised his proper authority in his life to correct him, to challenge him. And this, we've seen many times, seemed to be a real dysfunction in David's life as a father, is he was a weak-willed father. And he did not raise his children in a way whereby he honored the Lord over his children. He at times did not in interject into his children's life and correct them and discipline them properly. And a big part of that is very likely because David constantly wrestled with the guilt in his life over his own sin. And so he always felt awkward correcting his children probably because of the guilt over his own sins and failures. Now listen, that, that's not justification to not be a parent still. And unfortunately, David here failed in some ways and created his own monsters in some ways in his own household. And Adonijah here, we see, was the byproduct in some ways even of a, a failure of David as a father. And so now he's just this undisciplined, spoiled kid who's thinks something special of himself and now he's exalting himself trying to be the king. Verse 7 says, Then he conferred with Joab and Zariah with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed and helped Adonijah. So Adonijah, he's smart. He's networking now. He goes and gets Joab, David's uh, chief general in the military, and he kind of wins him over to be a follower and help him with his little campaign here to show himself as the next king. He grabs Abiathar and brings him on board. He's trying to gather some important people around him to show that he's got some, you know, kind of some street cred here as the next successor and that people should go with him. But verse 8 says, Zadok the priest and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet... And it says, Shimei, Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. Now, what the Bible is telling us in verse 8 there is all those who had a reputation to be righteous, to be godly, 
they were not in support of what Adonijah was doing because they knew it was not in line with what the will of God was. So they weren't cooperating with this. And Adonijah, verse 9, sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatted cattle by the stone of Zoeleth, which is by Enrogal. And he invited all of his brothers, the king's sons who were remaining alive at this point, and all the men of Judah and the king's servants. So what he's doing is he's, he's hosting a, a campaign rally here. He's having sacrifices and food and a feast and, again, showing everybody what a great guy he is and why he ultimately ought to be their king. But notice verse 10 interjects, but he did not invite to the big campaign rally and feast. He did not invite Nathan the prophet because Nathan the prophet spoke God's word. And he spoke God's will. We don't want him to show up. He might tell us what God wants. Didn't invite Nathan the prophet or Benaniah, a very loyal man among David's mighty men, or Solomon, his brother, who was God's chosen king. Now take note here. Here he's having this feast and this celebration. He's gathering all these people together and he's doing something, but he's doing something and he's excluding godly individuals, righteous men, He's doing certain things and not allowing certain individuals to be aware of what he's doing. He's keeping it secretive. Let me just say here, whenever a person is doing something and there needs for some reason to be some level of secrecy to what they're doing and certain individuals, particularly maybe godly individuals, those who are actually righteous and want God's will, can't be aware or can't be involved and they're kind of being pushed out or excluded that should be a real big red flag there. They're probably doing something that's not God's will. Because the things of the Lord are done in the light. There's no secrecy to the things of God. And if there's something that has to have an element of secrecy to it, or you know, you have to do something, but there's certain individuals that can't be aware, you're kind of hiding things, which is what Adonijah, he's kind of hiding this little campaign rally he's having. That's an indication that what he's doing is wrong. And it's something of the flesh. Because it's the flesh that wants to hide things and keep them in the dark and keep them secret. If what we're doing is right, it can always be done out in the open in the light. So here's an indication. He doesn't invite Solomon or Nathan the prophet while this is going on. So Nathan apparently, again, uh, becomes aware, however, of this and realizes this is not good and this is not in alignment with God's will. So, of course, he wants to stand up for God's will and he's going to interject because he wants to honor God's will and see God's will be done. So Nathan went and spoke to Bathsheba, that was Solomon's mother, saying to her, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And David, our Lord, does not know it. He's, he's laying there on a sickbed. He's not aware this is taking place. Come, please let me now give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. So he brings this to the attention of Bathsheba, not because, you know, he's angry or trying to arouse her jealousy. Wait a minute, that's my little boy that's supposed to be the king on the throne. That's not why he's telling Bathsheba this. He's telling Bathsheba this, one, because he wants to see God's will come to pass, and two, when somebody took the throne, typically what they did was execute any other potential person who could be a threat to the throne. So if Adonijah takes the throne... One of his first orders of business is going to be, I need to execute Solomon because he was supposed to be on the throne. And I need to execute his mother and his entire family. So their lives were at risk and in jeopardy. And this is why Nathan brings this up for their own welfare to spare them. 
He says, verse 13, go immediately to King David and say to him, did you not, my Lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. Why then is Adonijah become king? Then while you're still talking there with the king, I will also come in after you and confirm your word. So he says, look, you need to go to David and remind him of what the will of God is and what he already has promised to you. See, the Bible shows us here that at some point, David already was aware that God had chosen Solomon of all his children. God sovereignly chose Solomon. First Chronicles 22 indicates this as David recounts the story of what happened when God told him that he was going to build him a house and that he wasn't going to build the temple and that Solomon was going to be the builder. It's, he's mentioned by name there as David recounts the story of that event. So David and obviously many others know Solomon is God's choice to be the successor. And he had promised Bathsheba, listen, you're, you're and I son Solomon, that's who's going to sit on my throne and be my successor. And he says, go remind him of what he promised and what the will of God is. And why has Adonijah already sought to become the king before you've even died? And he says, while you're talking to him, I'll come in after you. And as his prophetic uh, sort of cabinet member, I'll confirm those words. I'll remind him at the same time as you're saying those things. So Bathsheba went into the chamber of the king and the king was very old and Abishag the Shunammite was serving the king. And Bathsheba bowed and did homage to the king. That was typical, customary, if you were going to make a request of the king. So though she's one of his wives, she still honors his authority as a, a king and his position God has given to him. And the king said to her, what is your wish? So she goes in, she humbly bows herself before uh, him in homage, in, in a position of submission and surrender. And he says, what do you wish? I, I love that picture there. You bow yourself in submission and homage and worship to the throne and the heart of the throne is, wow, your heart's submitted. What do you wish? What do you want? And it's going to be interesting in the next cha couple chapters, we're going to see God's going to say to Solomon, Solomon, what do you want? Ask me anything. And, and Solomon's not even doing this. And I think it's just a beautiful picture. I think when our heart comes to that place where we're fully submitted, we have no agenda, no, we're just fully submitted, I think the heart of God's throne is, is what's on your heart? What do you wish? Your heart's submitted to me, you're bowed before me in worship and surrender. So she then answers, my Lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your maidservant, saying, surely Solomon, your son, shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne so she reminds him of what david had already promised solomon to be the one who would reign on his throne after him so now look adonijah has become king and now my lord the king you do not know about it i'm bringing this to your attention he sacrificed oxen and cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king abiathar the priest and joab the commander of your army but Solomon, your servant, he is not invited. So she brings him up to speed. What's going on behind his back as he's there kind of limited in a very small world to his bedchamber as he's in failing health. And as for you, my Lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my Lord, the king, after him otherwise it will happen when my lord the king rests with his fathers when you die 
that I and my son Solomon will be actually counted as the ones who are offenders. So she says, David, listen, here's what's going on. And the people are looking to you to declare with your authority from the throne what is God's will on this matter. And you have not officially yet declared publicly who your successor is. You have not publicly identified to the people, this is my choice because this is God's choice for my successor and the next king of Israel. And she says, the people are looking to you and you haven't done this yet. And if you don't do it before you die, me and Solomon are going to look like the wrong ones. We're going to be put in jeopardy and God's will is not going to come to pass. I love how she says to him in verse 20, sort of reminding him of his role and his responsibility. She says, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them, David, this is your responsibility. You need to fulfill your role as as God's man in this situation. This is, this is something that you're responsible to do and you haven't fulfilled what God's asked you to do yet. You know that this is your responsibility. And I love it too because it beautifully pictures for me, again, the eyes of all are on you, who? The king, the one who's on the throne. And I'll tell you, that, that it should be how it is, that the eyes of everyone would be upon the king who's upon his throne. That's where our eyes and our focus ought to be. And we ought to want to hear what does the king have to say on this matter? Let's get our eyes off of the world. Let's get our eyes off of what this Adonijah is doing over here and that group's doing over there. And all get our eyes on the king and look to the throne and say, what is the word from the throne? What, what, what's the throne have to say about this? What is God's will in this matter? That's what we ultimately should have a heart for She's reminding David the people are really in expectation of. And just then, while she was still talking with the king, Nathan the prophet then came in. And so they told the king, saying, here's Nathan the prophet. And David always knew he brought a word from the Lord. So when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my Lord, O king, have you said, is this your wish? He's asking, have you said that Adonijah shall reign after me? And he shall sit on my throne? Is this what you want, David? For he has gone out today, verse 25, and sacrificed oxen and fatted cattle and sheep in abundance, invited all your king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And look, they are eating and drinking before him. And they say, long live King Adonijah. They're halfway to coronating him, David, as the next king while you're not even aware of what's going on. Verse 26, but however, notice again, he has not invited me, your servant, nor Zadok the priest. Again, we don't want a prophet there. We don't want a priest there. They, they care about God's will. Nor Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, nor your servant Solomon. Has this thing been done by my Lord, the king? And have you not told your servant who should sit on the throne of my Lord, the king after him. Again, notice, see what Nathan's reminding him of David, verse 27. Is this what you want? And then he says, haven't you not already told your servant, David, as your advisor spiritually, as, as the prophet who served next to you while you've been a friend, as your spiritual confidant, your mentor, and the one who speaks into your life prophetically as the king of Israel by, by God's design. He says, haven't you told me who should sit on the throne after you? Then why is this going on? So he's reminding David, sorting, uh, jogging his memory of that this is happening and this is not God's will. What are you going to do about it? He's saying, if this isn't of you, what are you going to do? So David, verse 28, this all clicks now, answered, 
and says, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king took an oath and said, as the Lord lives, who's redeemed my life from every distress. I love the way David always weaves in something about who God is to him. He just, when he talks, it's like he cannot contain describing his personal experiences with God. That's why we love the Psalms so much. And again, here, one of David's references to his own personal experiences with God. Uh, again, he says, he is the Lord who has redeemed my life from every distress. You know, distress. We talk about a distress signal, S-O-S. -S. When your life is in distress, it means there is a storm and the ship is damaged and the ship is sinking and going down. And so therefore, you're beyond stressed. You are distressed. You're overwhelmed. You are at your wit's end because you are utterly distressed. And here's the wonderful thing. The Lord is a savior. Not just the savior from our sin. And if he's willing to save us from our sin and hell and the eternal punishment for our sin, that's the greatest salvation. How much more than is he willing to save us and spare us when we face difficulties and, and distressing situations where we feel like our life is just ebbing away or maybe everything's spiraling out of control. And maybe tonight that refers to where you're at. Maybe you're in deep distress right now over something. But listen, the Lord can deliver you out of that distress. He wants to. He wants to help you, to come to your aid, to, to assist you, to carry you through it, to set you free and get you to the other side safely of the storm. He'll deliver you from any and every distress. And David knew that many times. And he says, therefore, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me. He shall sit on my throne in my place, so I will certainly do this today. So he says, listen, I need to act and I need to make this official so that this Adonijah thing is stopped and the fleshly work is put to an end. He says, I'm going to make it official today. I'm making an oath and a proclamation that Solomon is God's choice and is the one on the throne as the king of Israel, I speak on behalf of God's authority. Solomon is to succeed me as king. God has selected him and I'm now going to enact that publicly. And even notice, even before David dies, what he does here is he makes at this moment Solomon a co-regent with him. So now Solomon enters in at this point to be recognized as the king. And in a sense, he basically reigns for a short period together with his father executing his father's wishes, sort of a co-regent until David officially dies. So Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth, paid homage to the king and said, let my Lord King David live forever. And David said, call to me Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king and the king said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord, have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. So basically, again, this the king's mule, and it may seem strange that that was what the king rode on, but that was, again, uh, mules were rare in that day, and they were stable in the way that they walked, sometimes better than horses that could be a little wild. So the king had their customary mule, kind of like, you know, like that was maybe sort of the ancient Air Force One or the motorcade, you know, for the president. <laughs> that, that, that was the, hey, he's on the king's mule. I mean, that's... So David said, hey, put him on my mule. If you put him on my mule, people will know that's the king's mule. That's the new king. 
That's the co-regent and the successor because David didn't let just anybody ride on his mule. So he says, we, we need to make this public and official. We need to make God's will known. And let me just say something. One of the best ways to protect against the flesh from stopping God's will is be proactive to make God's will known. That's why the Bible tells us not to be ashamed of what's spiritual in our lives. Just make it public, man. Just make it obvious. This is who I am. <laughs> and th this is what God so says. Put him on my mule. Let the people see. Go down to Gihon and there let Zadok the priest, verse 34, and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel, coronate him, blow the horn and say publicly, long live King Solomon. And then you shall come up after him and he shall sit on my throne and he shall be king in my place for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. So again, David, the king here, validating that his son, Solomon, was to be the one who would sit upon his throne. He says, for I, as the king, have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. I like this here. The, the father is validating his son, his chosen selection to be ruler. And this reminds me of how God, our father, does much the same. Very clearly, very pointedly, the father the king of kings validates that his son, Jesus, is to be the ruler over all things, to sit together with him, if you would, as a co-regent upon the throne. Hebrews 1 describes this, and Jesus many times was validated as the father would say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And again, this same way the father in heaven validates Jesus as his appointed son and the one who is to be ruler of all. Verse 36, so Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, answered, and he was excited about this, Amen. May the Lord God of the king say so too. As the Lord has been with my Lord the king, even so may he now be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. So Benaniah realizes this is God's will. He's excited to help see it come to pass. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, these were David's, remember, sort of bodyguards. They went down to Solomon and had him ride on the king's mule and took him to Gihon. And then Zadok the priest, as David instructed, took the horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. Again, that's very important. If you're going to enter into the calling of God, you need the anointing of God upon your life. Oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So the idea here is God's given you this calling. He's given you this role, but you need to be anointed by the Spirit in order to fulfill what God's called you to do. So they anointed him publicly, recognized him Blew the horn, long live King Solomon. It's unquestionable now. And all the people went up after him and played flutes and rejoiced with great joy so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. And again, they're rejoicing and there's great joy in musical celebration. Why? That joy is because of the fact that the right king is being enthroned. And when the right king is enthroned, that's where joy comes from. There's nothing but misery when anything else other than the rightful king is ruling and reigning in a situation, whether it's you know, in a collective group of people or whether it's in our own personal lives. But when you enthrone the right king 
and you bow your knee to the right one who's the ruler, that brings joy, man. There is no greater joy than to enthrone the right ruler and the right king in your life or among a church. And so here are the people, they're just celebrating long live King Solomon. This is God's selection. There's great joy about this. But Adonijah is going to get a rude awakening. He and all his guests who were with him heard this going on. And they finished eating. And when Joab heard the sound of the horn, he said, what is the noisy uproar there in the city? And while he was still speaking, there came Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. And Adonijah said to him, come in, you are a prominent man. And so you probably bring good news. What, what do you have to tell me is the next king of Israel, he's thinking. And Jonathan answered and said to him, Adonijah, no, our Lord King David has just made Solomon king. You're a little bit too late. Your campaign party went on a little too long. You missed the coronation. David just proclaimed Solomon officially, publicly, as the next king of Israel. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaniah and the Cherethites and Pelethites and they've made him ride on the king's mule. It's evident, validated. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. And have gone up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. And that is the noise that you're hearing. Also Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom. And moreover the king's servants have gone to bless our Lord the King David saying, May God make the name of Solomon better than your name. And may make his throne greater than your throne. And then the king bowed himself on his bed. And also the king said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has given me one, David said, to sit on the throne this day while my eyes still see it. Again, he's rejoicing, Lord, thank you, that before I died, I got to see your will come to pass. I mean, and this is just something that mattered to David. He's, thank you, Lord. I bless you that you let me see the fulfillment of your promise. You let me see it come to pass before I die. Well, Adonijah realizes this is not good news for him at this point, as the chapter concludes. So all the guests who were with him were afraid, and I guess so. They're thinking, we are at the wrong campaign party. <laughs> we had to get out of here. And they arose, and each went his way. We need to get over to the other party. So Adonijah was afraid of Solomon. He's the king now. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Now, this was something that they would do to take the horns of the altar. Remember, the altar had four horns, one on each corner, and this was basically a symbolic way of, of pleading for mercy. You'd grab the horns of the altar, spare me, and this is the idea here of grabbing the horns of the altar, spare me, have mercy. And so it was told Solomon, saying, Indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon, for look, he's taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, if, notice verse 52, if he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar. And he came down and fell before King Solomon, terrified probably. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. He just dismissed him gave him the opportunity to prove out whether he was going to change or he was going to continue in his ways. Now, keep in mind, at this time, as Solomon becomes co-regent and these events are going on, Solomon is only probably chronologically about 16 to 17 years old. Probably another real reason why 
Adonijah, who's probably maybe in his mid-30s at this point, is thinking, why the, the you know, what, 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 can you say heck from the pulpit? I, must, I said it now anyway. What, 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 this is a teenager. This kid's inexperienced. Why would the calling of God, he's 16 or 17 years old. I've got 15 years on him, much more experienced. I'm much more entitled. I'm much more talented. I'm much more intelligent. But God's calling and God's anointing was on a 16 or 17 year old young man. That's who God chose and who God was raising up and who God was going to use. And here, he shows tremendous mercy in sort of his first act of decision here. And he starts out really well, Solomon does. He does ultimately kind of go downhill down the road. But he starts well. And here, look what Solomon does. He shows mercy to Adonijah in this situation. He extends mercy and an opportunity to change and make things right. He says to him, if he proves himself, verse 52, a worthy man, not one hair of his head, will fall to the earth. If he proves that he's worthy, that he wants to change, that he's sorry for what he did, then he says, if he wants to change and make things right, then uh, no harm will come to him. But if he shows that he's wicked and that's found in him long term, then he's going to suffer the consequences for his persistent wrongdoing and sin. And I love this picture here. Mercy is extended, opportunity to change and make things right, and a chance to turn things around. And humbly embrace God's will. Listen, that's the heart of God's king. That's the heart of Jesus. He extends mercy to us in our failures and he says, yes, you have done what's wrong, but I'm going to give you a chance to turn things around. I'm going to give you a chance to make things right and to embrace God's will rather than your will. That's what Adonijah needed to do. He needed to embrace God's will, which was Solomon, rather than his own will, which was wanting what he wanted in his way. And God's so merciful like that. Even in our failures, he gives us an opportunity to change, to turn things around, to embrace his will, to forsake our will in situations. You know, I think one of the great lessons in this chapter here is that despite our own desires or views or maybe even our... You know, our reasoning on a matter, listen, it's never good to try and make what we want come to pass. It is always, always best to resist that fleshly desire and effort to make what we want come to pass, like Adonijah, and much better to embrace God's will, what God's chosen, and what God wants and to just submit to that and know God knows best and God's got a purpose and a plan. And I think that's certainly one of the great lessons of our chapter here. Let's stand, let's pray together. We'll conclude there this evening.